that took us around the world, hitting Colombia, Thailand, India, Greece, Spain, and finally Egypt. Everyone back home kept asking us how all this travel was changing our son, and our honest answer was, probably not at all. During our travels, we had seen Cole pick up little words here and there, like kabkun for thank you in Thailand or hola in Spain, but he didn't retain those words once he stopped hearing them every day. And while it was fascinating to watch him adapt to each culture so effortlessly, we knew as a one-year-old he wouldn't remember any of it. Without encountering Spanish, Thai, Hindi, Greek, or Arabic again for a sustained period, he would grow up to be an English-only speaker like us. I had heard that there is a window when a child is very young, during which exposure to a second language can lead to native mastery of that second language. For example, if we moved somewhere right now where Cole would hear, say, Hindi every day, he could grow up to speak Hindi just as well as he spoke English. These were the thoughts percolating in my head around the time I ran into the research of Ellen Bialystok. Her research showed that there was a cognitive benefit to being bilingual, that speaking a second or third language could stave off the effects of dementia by four to five years. My grandfather had died from complications surrounding dementia a few years earlier, so when I read these results, I took notice. My grandfather had been an English-Finnish bilingual. The last four to five years of his life were maybe the best he ever had. He played a lot of golf in those four years. He made the three-day trip in his red Cadillac from his lake house in Massachusetts to his condo in Florida and back multiple times in that period. We had long conversations over the phone, and I told him that I would take him to Finland with me. We hadn't been close when I was young, but in his last years, though we didn't know they were his last years, I really got to know him. If he hadn't had those extra five years to live, thanks to his bilingualism, I might never have really known him. My grandfather's dementia was likely a hereditary condition, but unlike him, I don't have bilingualism to delay the effects. It's possible that acquiring a second language later in life could help, but Bialystok only studied lifelong bilinguals who spoke both languages fluently. If there was a window for mastering a second language to native-like fluency, it had probably closed for me. But it wasn't too late for my son. For our documentary, the filming was done. Drew would be doing the bulk of the editing, so true to form, I was feeling my familiar tug toward the next big project. I started seriously thinking about languages and how to raise my child bilingual. Drew and I could do our jobs from anywhere with a wireless internet connection, Cole was squarely in his second language mastery window, but growing fast. If we wanted him to learn another language fluently enough to pass for a native speaker, and then maybe to ward off the dementia that was likely coming for me and him from my grandfather's genes, we'd have to act fast. Suddenly, the way forward seemed clear. What had before been just a few isolated details now connected in a way that could not be unseen. It felt like fate. I wasn't prone to magical thinking, but somehow I was letting that feeling drive me. We'd move abroad, somewhere with a tough language, one that Cole would really only be able to master if he lived there from toddlerhood, and I'd learn it too so I could speak to him in the language at home and reap whatever brain-protecting benefits I could from later-in-life language study. And if knowing two languages was better than knowing one language, surely knowing three or four would be better than knowing just two. So, once we mastered the first foreign language, we'd replicate the experiment twice more. We'd become fluent in three new languages in just a few years by devoting ourselves completely to it and immersing ourselves in those cultures and countries. It was a brilliant plan. First, I had to convince my husband. Somehow, I was always the one pitching an idea and cajoling Drew into coming along. 
Ten years prior, I had scooped Drew up from his man cave attic apartment in Connecticut, where he was working as an animator, and convinced him to move cross-country together to Seattle after only three months of dating. The timing was right. We both wanted new jobs and a new start, so we decided to take the leap. But when I showed up at his apartment the morning of the move, it was a disaster. Years' worth of artwork, drawings, and illustrations covered the floor like newspaper on the bottom of a hamster cage. His fish tank was green with a long-forgotten dead fish and one floating baby doll for effect. He had saved every empty beer bottle from the last six months of drinking and had haphazardly lined them up on the counters, on the windowsills, and against the baseboards. I would need a shovel to dig him out of this mess. It wasn't until later, when we started our cross-country road trip, that I began to realize what was going on. He was nervous. He didn't pack because he was procrastinating, avoiding the enormity of the life change we were embarking on. He told me stories on that 10-day drive, stories about not taking his SATs or applying to any colleges until a full semester after he graduated high school when he realized, oh right.